And we are live. Hello, and thank you so much for joining this episode of the Connection Loop podcast. I am here with Dave Lucas, and we are going to explore the topic of unleashing your inner misfit entrepreneur to reach your true potential. So we've got a great mind in the house right now. Dave, if you could please start with a short bio, tell us a little bit about your origin story, and we'll get into this. Sure. Ruben, it's a pleasure to be on. It's a pleasure to be on with all of you guys out there. So gosh, my origin story. Well, that's, uh, I don't know if I can do that short. We'll have to, uh, <laughs> you know, bounce around a lot. Maybe that's the true, that's the misfit theme, right? So um, I, I've got a unique story. Uh, I, grew, I grew up in a, a family where half were entrepreneurs, uh, pretty successful, and half were uh, actually grew up dirt poor and all made it out and uh, made themselves successful in their own way. So I had kind of an interesting, you know, dichotomy growing up of looking at like and going and seeing like literally like, I mean, you know, what the poorest of the poor had to go through. And then, you know, another side that had made the success before it was even born. So I got to see like the, the, the top end of that. Right. And um, so I'd, I always kind of had that entrepreneur kind of gene, if you will. I was, you know, I was kind of the kid that if he said I couldn't do something, I would go and do it to prove me wrong. Like that's a Nate thing that I have. And we'll get into that because that's part of what an inner misfit is for everyone. Um, and so just as I, you know, went through life, it just became kind of a, a, a anytime I needed to tap into something to get to a new level, to get to a new um a place that that maybe people said I you know couldn't get to or that maybe even I thought that I couldn't get to um I had to tap into this kind of inner misfit this like this like inner you know just self that that helped me to reach those levels and so use that to to get on uh, to a career in entrepreneurship I actually had started my first business when I was five um and then it went from there and had a lot of different businesses through even high school into early college uh came out of college started my first real big um you know business with uh uh contractors, but kind of like employees, right? It wasn't just me and uh, failed absolutely miserably, miserably within a year. Like I had maybe like had a thousand dollars a month in income coming in. I was working three other jobs to make ends meet. And um, I, I just realized I didn't know what I didn't know. I thought I had known, right? But I didn't. And so I kind of went on this journey. I actually went and worked in the fortune 500 space for about seven years. And during that time, um, I had a lot of success. I went in the sales side and ended up being a, a, a top representative in a Fortune 500. But then um, while I was doing that, I was looking for all the angles to get back into entrepreneurship. And thankfully, I had some great leaders recognize I was an entrepreneur and I wasn't going to be a lifer. And they kind of fostered that in me. Um, and, and it's one of the things that helped make me successful. While I was there, but I started investing in companies and a number of different things while there and ultimately left uh, to uh, you know focus full time on one of them. And, um, Nowadays, I own a number of companies. That originally company uh, was able to sell off a few years ago and, and kind of uh, actually semi-retire off of that. And uh, along the way, there's all these other offshoots, right? So you know, you people see me, the Misfit Entrepreneur. They see like the podcast. They see that stuff. But they also see me over in the investing education side where I've been for 20 years teaching people all over the world how to create income and cash flow and financial freedom in the markets. Then they see me on you know another side with uh, boards on companies and different things like that. So like it it kind of doesn't have any rhyme or reason to look at it. But if you kind of think of like the story, like once I had some success, I needed to find a way to take the excess cash I invested. Right. So I started in real estate. Then I started in markets. What I learned there, I started teaching others. That created a business. 
right? And then the offshoots from that led me to other things where I met people with other businesses and I had success and they asked me to come on and help them. And so it just kind of snowballed like that. And where it doesn't kind of make sense if you look at it in their individual parts, they all kind of feed off each other. And so that's how I got into all the different businesses that I have and that I own and I've been able to do as well as uh, the other endeavors that I do, uh, like, uh, you know, racing Ironman and all that other stuff. So that's the shortest I can go on it all. That's that's great. That's a great start. So let's just jump right into this. I mean, there's a couple of metrics yeah. that I think that entrepreneurs, small business owners, they, they look at in terms of how they gauge their growth and how they gauge how much they're, they're growing and, and scaling, frankly, as a business. And I think there's some internal metrics and I think there's some external metrics. An internal metric might be what is my revenue amount or what is my mm. profitability amount? Um, what is the, the net valuation? How much is this company worth? How much can I sell it for one day? You know, another external um, metric might be, well, am I, am I on a list? Am I part of an Inc. 5000 mm. list? Am I a Fortune 500 company? So you've obviously had some great experiences working in terms of scaling businesses up to a certain mm. level. Um, I know with Grass Technologies, you guys uh, were on the Inc. 5000 list. Um, what would you say, if you could just guide us um, in terms yeah. of how a company can grow to get to be on, let's just say, the Inc. 5000 list? Because I think that's such a great metric on yeah. true growth. Well, I mean, that's a group effort to get there, right? We hit that list six times. And, uh, you know, there's very specific metrics for that list, right? There's a growth uh, levels that you have to be at. You have to be in business so long. You have to have revenue at a certain point and all that stuff. So they, they kind of set it and tell you what you have to do or where you have to be to get there. But actually doing that and actually doing what needs to be done to reach those levels is, um, you know, it's its own whole game. And every business is different. I can speak to my experience, having done it there and, and some other places and stuff too over the years, as well as a, a few other of those type of lists. Um, growth sucks cash. And that's the thing you have to understand in a business. Growth is going to suck cash. Like one of the things that we did at Grass when we were building it, and Grass guys was a software company. We ended up doing business in about 60 countries. It was a uh, business intelligence software firm. Now, it's it's funny. Talk about the misfit side. I went to school for finance and economics. I didn't know a thing about coding. I didn't know a thing about software. I didn't know a thing about technology, really. And it was a company that I met the owner when I was working in Fortune 500 space. And I could immediately understand the benefit. And I could easily articulate that benefit. Um, and, and we were in the travel space. So what we did is we helped corporations visualize their travel dollars. And it was near and dear to me because in a position that I was in, I was not able to see my P&L budget. The travel would always come in late. I wouldn't be able to see it in real time and I'd be over budget and I'd get yelled at for being over budget. And I would constantly say, well, give me a way to manage it. Give me a way to see the, the, what's happening so I can, you know, talk to our employees and make sure that they're, you know, staying within budget before they get out of budget because so you, so you can get a grasp on it. Expense. <laughs> so you can get a grasp right. on it. Yeah. Hence the name. Right. So, so anyway, so, so I could understand that and articulate that. And so my business partner was the technical genius behind it. Uh, still is still with the company. Um, with the with the new owner. And I was like that sales side, right? So it was the soft skills and the hard skills that really went together that made that go. And if you're going to build a business, especially with partners, you have to complement each other like that, 
right? And personality-wise, you have to complement each other. So if you, you know, starting at the very beginning, the very base of it, if you're in a partnership, you've got to have that. Most partnerships don't last. And it's like a marriage. You are going to have times where you hate each other. You're going to argue. You're going to disagree. You're, you're, I mean, you're literally going to have to work through it together and, and continuously work on your relationship. That's, you know, what makes a good partnership. So we had a good foundation. We understood each other well. And we were able to work really well to, with each other for, you know, ended up being, you know, almost 15 years, you know, from the time I invested through the time we, you know, actually sold it. But the, um, the hardest part when you're growing a business like that is, like I said, growth sucks cash. One thing we never did was take any money. We self-funded. Okay. Now that's not common for fast growing like software and tech companies. Usually you're going to do a round and that sort of thing. And it's great because you keep your equity. Right. And your cap table is really easy, you know, in our case, two owners. Um, but it's it, it's one of those things where you're it's a constant feast or famine. And we would grow two, three, four hundred percent, but not make any money. Because we have to invest it for the growth and invest it for the growth. Right. And so you have to make that decision ahead of time of how and what you're willing to do. Are you willing to sacrifice a lot? Right. Especially in the beginning for the growth that you're going to get um, and fund that yourself. Or are you going to take outside money? And what are you willing to do for that? That's a big decision in the beginning. Once you make that decision, you know which way you're going to go, then it is just work. And it's find a way, make a way. It is nonstop. It is 24 hours a day. It is, you know, always being creative, looking for ways to make things work. I mean, we guerrilla marketed like crazy, right? We piggybacked on our competitions like conferences and went there to meet clients and all kinds of things like that to where we could do that without having to spend a bunch of money in marketing and advertising and all that stuff. And we built a brand that was really synonymous with great people, great quality and uh, people that were just that really cared, you know, and that's what we built our brand around. Software is pretty good. There's softwares out there that are probably better. But, you know, for us, it was it was not so much the uh, does it work because it worked, but it's not when it works that you have a problem. It's when it doesn't work is when you got to be your best. And so we built a whole culture around the service side of it for when things didn't work or things you know didn't make sense to a client that we were you know, Johnny on the spot, we were right there. We were, you know, hugging them. We were helping them. We were doing all that. And I think that's what ultimately fueled the growth because a lot of our growth came from referrals that way. And our right. average client stayed almost uh, 12 years. That was our client retention on average. Incredible. So you so, mentioned guerrilla marketing. So let's sort of unpack the misfit, uh, the misfits uh, CMO strategy. Okay. So you mentioned conferences, you mentioned some competitor uh, things, kind of, if you could just please unpack your definition of guerrilla marketing and how a company that maybe doesn't have VC funding or external financing, or is it bootstrapped and that wants to attain a certain level of growth? What is it that they can start doing within the confines of, you know, what's considered, um, obviously not just ethical, but what's considered attainable? Yeah. Because guerrilla yeah. marketing back in the day is different from what it is now. I mean, back in the day, mm -hmm. you could buy an email list and you could blast <laughs> an email list and you might actually get some responses. Now it's obviously much more difficult because there's a lot more right. filters, both literally and metaphorically. So guide us through that a little bit. Before we jump in, let's uh, at least define misfit, right? So, you know, uh, right. people like, you know, will ask me all the time, like, all right, you know, um, you know, you don't look like a misfit. 
Like, <laughs> you know, how, what, where's the misfit angle come from? Right. And I think it's important that, uh, it's that the dirty little secret is everyone's a misfit. We all have this uniqueness to us that, you know, we can tap into, or we do tap into in areas of our lives that, uh, is like a genius for us, or that really, you know, uh, it brings out our passion or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily use it in all other areas of our lives. Great example. Let's say you work in somebody in an office and in an office, they're very clean cut. They're very straight and narrow. They're very by the book. And then you get out to uh, a game with them at their favorite sports team. And they're insanely crazy and nuts for their sports <laughs> team. That passion comes out and all that stuff. That's right. their misfit side. Now, what if they brought that to work though? What would things look like? How would their performance be? It may be better, right? So it's understanding that everybody's got this uniqueness to them. And, and what I did when I started the, the misfit entrepreneur podcast and kind of the journey, the whole thing started as an idea when my wife and I are adopting our daughter in China. And it just, it hit me as I was starting to just bond with my daughter that there's all these things I got to teach her. There's all these, these, these pieces of wisdom, these unique things I've, I've learned from like sitting directly across from people like Zig Ziglar or Brian Tracy or all these others that I've gotten to meet. Tons of millionaires, a lot, a, a lot of, you know, incredibly successful people, even a couple of billionaires. And it's what I wrote my book about years ago um, the 10 year career about all these things I learned on this five year journey. And the whole point of the journey was to look for these consistencies, these things that set these people apart and help them to stay successful. Well, it, I didn't call it that then, but really that's, it was their misfit side. And this, this I'm, I'm in the, I, I remember it vividly. I've got my daughter. We're walking up and down the hallways of the Marriott Guangzhou while we're going through in China, while we're going through the process of adopting. And this thought hit me that, She's got to learn all these things from those I've met, those I will meet, these amazing people out there, things that I'll learn so that Hannah, my daughter, can learn from her daddy and his misfit friends long after I'm dead and gone. And that's how the whole idea for doing the podcast started. It started this side project to provide this, just this treasure trove of knowledge and share it with her in the world to help people be more successful. And so that's what we do on the show, right? We dig in and find these misfit sides, this uniqueness, unique genius that people use to not only get success, but stay successful. So with that as a backdrop, now we can talk about like, okay, guerrilla marketing. Well, guerrilla marketing is just tapping into that unique genius. It's looking at and saying, okay, what are all the ways that I can bring visibility to my company, that I can get sales, that I can, you know, reach my goals without necessarily having to spend tens of thousands of dollars. Or if I am going to spend some money, it really gives me a heck of a return on investment. Every business is different. For me, and what we did at Grasp, that was trade shows. So we tapped in the trade show market. We knew that if we got in front of people, that we really could make an impact on them. And we developed a whole process for how we did trade shows and unique. And you know, one of the funniest things, one of the, the littlest things that made the biggest difference, yo-yos. Talk about misfit and unique gorilla things. So we got these yo-yos, and this was this was well over a decade ago, right? But we got these yo-yos that lit up. And so what we would do is we would sit at the booth and we would sit there yo-yoing with these light up yo-yos attracting all this attention. And people would come <laughs> over and, and see the lights and be like, What do you what is that? And then they would get all nostalgic because they saw a yo-yo that they haven't had since they was a kid, and we would hand them out. And literally, it got to a point. Years later that people got were so like they loved those so much, they would actually get mad at the end of a trade show. If we were out, we didn't have any more. They would get upset that we didn't have any more. 
Like that's it, incredible. <laughs> so well, and there and there's a yo-yo. So like, but little here's things like that, and they were branded and everything, and and little things like that made. I mean, years later, people were like, I got one of your yo-yos, though, right? So little things that's like cool. that make a huge difference, right? So that's you cool. look for little unique things that stand out, that make you stand out, that people will remember you by, right? We went old school back to you know yo yo-yos to to give people something to to be nostalgic about and then uh you know kept going from there so trade shows are really good uh jv partners another really good uh place to uh to work with especially when you are just starting out yeah you may have to share some revenue but if you can get in front of somebody else's audience that's a good complimentary audience or one that could work with your products and services that's a great place to do things i've did that in the trading space in the investing space for years how we grew the brand um, didn't cost us anything unless we sold something, right? So there's that type of stuff. In today's world, and this is something you can you know really speak to too. Obviously, we have social media everywhere, right? And there's all kinds of different social medias that you can get on. The thing that I found about social media is there's is mostly it's noise. You could post a hundred right. times a day and not get really any clicks for anything, yeah. right? Exactly. So I I think the when it comes to social <laughs> media and standing out, it's Find the platforms that you like and in a medium that you like. So, for example, if you really like being on camera, then just start on YouTube and do your thing and don't worry about the following. Put out great content, be authentic, and if you build it, they will come, right? And, uh, you know, I, I've got a great example. We started our YouTube channel for our, our trading company, our 12-minute trading, just last fall, myself and a partner. And we just started doing a weekly video as well as putting out a few other update videos, right? Now we do a lot more than that, but it's grown pretty well. It's not a, you know, a huge channel. It's got hundreds of subscribers and stuff on it, but, you know, it's helped to build the visibility for the brand. And it's been a lot of fun. We've gotten a lot more engagement and we get people that come to the channel and buy our services, right? And we're still, we're six months in, right? So a year from now, it'll be double that and it'll continue. And you kind of hit this snowball point where it grows. We love doing that though. We love talking the markets. We love showing what's happening in the, in the charts and where things are going and how we're taking advantage to make money off of it. And so it's a, it's a great thing. Um, if that's not your thing though, then maybe Quora is a really good thing. Go start answering questions for people on Quora, right? Uh, things like that. Places that you can go show your knowledge. And, you know, I know people that are, you know, they become millionaires off of just, you know, core stuff and then link it to their sub stack where people go, you know, learn from them there. Right. So Twitter's a very quick messaging thing. So if you like to do things really fast and, you know, get things quickly out there and snippets or maybe you're really good at posting funny memes, then maybe Twitter's a good place for you. Right. So you kind of have to gravitate to, again, your misfit side, what you're naturally good at. And what you enjoy doing when it comes to social, um, and then you can get uh, you know your uh, your uh, message out that way. Lastly, email man, email still is one of the best places to uh, build a business. Building your email list, you know, and uh, growing that relationship—that's truly, truly one of the only things you will own in today's world. Any any social media platform can kick you off tomorrow. You can, you can be canceled. You can be all that type of stuff. But when you have an email list, the 10,000, 5,000, whatever it is, right? You, you have that, that connection and they can't take that away from you. And so you have to be, no matter where you're at, building that email list. And we did that really well at Grasp early on. You know, every trade show we collected 
their email and we'd follow up and stay in front of them and had newsletters and did all this stuff just to uh, really, really be relevant, right? So um, should always be building that list as well too. So th those are a few things. There's tons more we could talk about, but well, that sure was. I mean, that, I think what. <laughs> yeah, I think what you just unpacked there was was basically a go to marketing strategy. This is a this is a fabulous GTM. You know, when we start to think about uh, growth and scale, we start to think about this idea where how can we convert from going from an outbound marketer to an inbound marketer so that ultimately people mm -hmm. just come to us. They, they watch our videos. They see our social media posts. They see those core posts. They see the, tw the tweets and they see those emails in their inbox. And then all of a sudden they click on stuff. They watch our videos. They engage with us. And then eventually they raise their hand and say, I want to work with you. Dave Lucas, mm -hmm. I want to work with you. And that's a that's right. a fabulous thing. So question for you is how can what, what is that tipping point of going from an outbound company to an inbound company? You know, we probably all have to start as outbound. Mm -hmm. We have to pick up the phone and send emails and call people. But at what point do we know that we should switch to being an inbound company? When is it comfortable? When does it feel? Well, right I don't know if that? you have to. Why not be both? Why, okay. why ever stop going outbound, right? Um, because if you continue to go outbound, you're going to get more inbound. So I, I've always been uh, kind of an all of the above, not just one or the other. Um, and again, you have professional businesses, B2B, which is, you know, like what grass was, then you have B2C, you know, which is what, uh, you know, like, like 12 minute trading is. And then some of the other companies I have that I deal with a, a lot of like the fun side, I own funds and things like that, that people invest in. So each one has a different type of focus and a different type of communication. Remember market message medium, right? What's your market? What's the message to that market? What's the mediums that you get to, uh, to those markets? And they're different for everything. And so um, I think it's all of the above. I don't think there's you and or. And I will say that even if you're going to do like just go to inbound, I think the tipping point for that's going to be different for every business. And I do think that if you're only dependent on one, you need to be careful because you can have a big thing happen, such as a pandemic, and that could kill it. And you could be, you know, done today. So having multiple streams of how you bring clients in, not just inbound, but outbound and everything uh, will help insulate you from major events like that and things that can happen. Um, it's one of the things that saved us uh, and ultimately led to the sale of grass was the fact that we had um, we had a product that could survive a pandemic in the travel space when travel goes from 100 to zero overnight, right? Um, no matter if you had one traveler or 100 travelers or 10,000 travelers, you still needed our software to be able to track those things. So we were necessary in that sense. But what we did during that time is we said, this is the greatest time to grab market share we've ever seen. Because all of the competition, what did everybody do? They all went in their shell. Everybody pulled back. They let people go. They cut costs. They did all that. We went harder than we've ever gone before from a marketing standpoint. We actually... You know, we gave we, huge discounts. We gave, you know, all kinds of incentives and stuff and gained and grabbed market share. We added more new clients in that one year span than we had the three years prior to it. And we were a six time Inc. 5000 growing company. And so that ultimately coming out of that, you know, not only did that save us during that time, you know, kept the revenue going and kept us able to keep all of our employees employed and all of that. But coming out of that, that just boosted our value massively. Right. Um, and we continue to gain that market share. So I think there's, um, 
most of that was outbound though at that time because nobody was coming inbound. But we had, you know, we had outside sales reps. We had inbound strategies. We had it all going. These dried up. These really took over at that point in time, you know. So, um, so I, I don't think it should be. Uh, it should be and. It should be and, not not or. Yeah, I think um, one of the one of my favorite sort of uh, differences in business growth specifically is this idea of growth versus scale. And I think the way that I like to define growth versus scale is that growth is more outputs with with the same or less inputs, uh, or I should say growth is with more inputs and which results in more outputs and scale is the same or less inputs for more outputs. So growth takes more money. It takes more sales reps. It takes more advertising dollars, whereas scale Mm -hmm. has brand and it has uh, an exponential effect. Um, so this is something that I always like to talk about in terms of mm. the best way to sort of optimize how you're growing yeah. and how you're scaling as a company. Um, could you speak to that? Like, how how would you guide us on scaling our business as opposed to growing it and not having to spend a lot more dollars to attain that growth? You'll uh, you'll reach that point at some point in the business where you, no matter what you have fixed costs in the beginning, those are obviously going to be higher. As you grow, those become lower as a percentage of your revenue versus your, your cost of revenue. Right. And so you're going to reach a point where your fixed costs are your fixed costs. Right. And every dollar incrementally added at that point is more profitable than it was to get to a point where you had to cover those fixed costs. Right. So that's a natural progression as a business grows. When you really start to scale is, you, you'll really start to do that once you've got, for lack of a better term, things dialed in from your your market strategy and your go-to-market strategies, right? So once we nailed the trade show vertical and the JB vertical, um, we brought our outside, we brought our first outside salespeople on, right? And then you know started a process to to really get that right and how we presented, how we approached the market. Um, and we got some really amazing people. I mean, like just nonstop go-getters, right? And so, you know, we had that, got that built out pretty good. And so we got into this groove where, you know, we were, you know, just closing sales all the time. And it just started to snowball at that point because mm. though the costs were there. And so every incremental dollar. And the other thing I would say, and it's, some businesses can, some businesses can't, but I urge you, no matter what business you have to think about how you can do this, a recurring revenue model because it compounds on itself, right? Software people, you know, had initial, yes, implementation and stuff, but there was a monthly license fee for that. And so <clears throat> you don't just make the sale once, you make the sale, well, in our case, average client over 12 years, you had the, you made one sale, you get 12 years of revenue from it. So if you think about that, that's, what is that worth? You know, that's scale, right? And so recurring revenue really makes it a lot easier to scale because you can compound that revenue and it grows over time. Once you've had the initial cost of the sale um, and you're past your fist costs for this, you know, uh, of the company, that just becomes like pure profit at that point. And so that's the other side. And, and there are a lot of companies that you wouldn't think can have like recurring revenue model. I've seen landscapers that have recurring revenue models that have thought of (laughs) really smart ways to do that. Right. So don't think your company can't have a recurring revenue model. Look at how you can have that sort of, 
you know, subscription type service or recurring revenue type model. Um, you know, I actually was just uh, a few months ago, uh, my sister started a, um, a Botox business. She's a nurse anesthetist, her and her husband, very successful, but they really liked this whole, you know, Botox type thing. And, and there's only so many people that get certified in an area and stuff. And they saw an opportunity to do it in their area. And they got going and they had a great clientele and were having success. And um, we were talking over just drinks one night. I, I just mentioned, I, like, have you thought about doing like a like a club, like where they pay a certain amount every month and they get so many treatments a year and it's discount 10 or 15 percent or something like that. And you build a recurring revenue model out of it. Right. And they took that to heart and they now have a multiple six figure recurring revenue model from people just paying for that subscription to have their treatments throughout the year instead of paying when they have a treatment. Right. And so they now have this base of revenue that covers all their bills, covers everything else. And they're just scaling like crazy. They're going to be a multimillion dollar business inside of two years, you know. And so you can you can figure it out for just about any business but i th i think a recurring revenue model is <laughs> is definitely a a key if you want to scale uh, and and go bigger yeah i mean i think one of the reasons why i love this idea of recurring revenue and as the ceo of a software company obviously that's ingrained into our dna <laughs> because that's mm -hmm. how the whole system works but there's a couple of really really tangible uh benefits here number one is this idea of what is your return on your ad spend? Like if we are spending $100 to get a customer and we're mm -hmm. only making 100 bucks back or 200 bucks back, how is that even sustainable? I mean, that's right. a one-way ticket to nowhere, right? We have to get to a place where A, we get that client for 12 years, like what you did at Grasp. I mean, mm -hmm. that's powerful to have that lifetime value of you know 10x 20x of what we spent to acquire that customer. So All of a sudden, our profitability becomes you know, worthwhile. And so that's where we put, intriguing. and that's where we put a lot of our investment. We didn't put it into so much advertising and stuff. Yeah. Now, granted, we were kind of in a niche space, right? And there's, and that's something to be said about being uh, really niche down, right? Market message medium again. But, um, you know, you can be, you can be in a small market and do really, really well, right? Um, especially the recurring revenue type business. And so we invested in our people. We put it into in the product itself, right? If you're going to charge a recurring revenue model, you should continue to improve the product. But service is a huge thing, right? When people need help, that's when you shine or not shine the most, right? Um, how many people have been frustrated before with something that has worked for a long time, a service or whatever, you know, and you try to get help and it's like a nightmare. There's like 47 prompts on the telephone number. It's almost like the business is built for you never to get to talk to a person to get the help that you want. Right. Um, in today's age, that's actually a, a pretty common thing that you see companies do. Try to try to get to a person on Google, um, you know. <laughs> It for for something with their stuff right it's built to like make you go through all the faqs and prompts and things like that and it's it's can be pretty right. frustrating so right. no that's I, absolutely I think true yeah go in the opposite direction and you know putting that investment into your people and service i mean our motto was happy customers happy employees everybody wins right so you got to make your employees really happy you got to make your customers really happy and if you do that everybody's going to win and so right. Um, and, and so to me, there's, that's a strategic investment of how you do that. I, I think in the end, we were hiring like one in every 60 or 70 that we interviewed, you know, um, to find the right people for the team. 
And so I've, yeah. I've been able to help other companies kind of build their own models like that. Um, and it's been amazing. Mm -hmm. Once you know your core values, once you really understand who you are and you start really hiring for that, yeah, it takes longer to get the right people. But once you get the right people doing the right things in the right seats, man, it's amazing what a business can do and where it can go. Well, I love that. I mean, one of the one of the things about having happy customers is that you get referrals. And yep. whether you're a recurring business or not, whether you have a significant lifetime value of your customer or not, the most important thing that you can do for your marketing is having mm -hmm. a referral system. Because if we don't have some social coefficient for every customer that we get, that we get two or three or even 10 more, mm -hmm. um, ultimately our marketing is probably not that effective because we probably have to spend dollars on it. Um, so I think yeah. the, the, you know, to your point, happy customers, happy employees, everybody wins. That's a very powerful mm -hmm. statement if we think about that, because our employees, we mm -hmm. want them to be happy. We want them to come to work and to do what they do and to create content and to make relationships and to solve problems. And of course, if our customers yeah. are happy, they do what they did for you guys, which is spread the word. So that's powerful. Do you know what the greatest referral strategy on the planet is? Asking for referrals? <laughs> Pick up the phone and ask for a referral. That's the greatest <laughs> strategy in the world. Make it known to your clients that <clears throat> referrals are how you grow. And it's a, you know, it's an honor to serve them and an honor if they refer you. And the referral is the ultimate, ultimate sig uh, signal of trust from a customer. They can, yeah. they, you can send out as many surveys as you want, get all kinds of uh, attaboys and five stars and all that stuff. But if your customer is not willing to send you a referral, then you haven't hit it yet. You have not reached the level that you should be at. That's the, that, that was the number one question when we did surveys that we cared about. We, would you refer us to, uh, you know, a business partner or another, you know, uh, company like yours? That was the big thing. So Ask for what you want, make it known, um, and uh, you know, don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to ask a new customer for referrals. It's okay. Yeah. Take good care of them, but don't be afraid to ask. So, you know, I love just to change gears for a second. I love that ex that example that you gave, where you know, someone in their corporate setting might be very conservative, very, very prim and proper, but then once you get them to the sports game. <laughs> You know, they got the face paint on and they're going buck wild. And, you know, there's yeah. this idea that if we are truly free and if we liberate ourselves and if we can access our inner child and play with our yo-yo and if we can smile and be happy and grab a guitar when we want to and just express yeah. ourselves, that ultimately we can attain that liberty and ultimately create more connections with people because they sense our level of authenticity. They sense our humanity yeah. and they want to get to know us. They don't feel like we're just a cardboard cutout. So yeah. what would you say for folks that are kind of stuck in that realm where they have to tighten up the tie when they're, when they're at the office, but at, at home, they're a completely different person. Or when they go to a barbecue, they're, they're just a different person. How do, we, how do we get that integration, that alignment where they can ultimately create more connections and be more successful? There's a lot of different roles out there, right? And some roles require, you know, uh, a certain type of, way of acting and that sort of thing as well. I think it goes to most people, most people never reach their true potential. Most people never get what they want because they don't know what they want. They don't know who they are. And most people never sit down and actually spend a day, four, six, seven hours 
asking themselves, what do I really want? Who am I? What are my core values? What do I really, what do I truly believe in? What are the things that I won't sacrifice for anything, no matter what? What are those things for me? And I think if some, if people do that and they really get those down and, and in order to get there, you got to, you got to challenge yourself. You got to ask yourself, you know, really, is this like, cause your first answers are surface level always. You have to go second, third, fourth, fifth level deep to, you know, keep asking why, 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 why is that my core value? Why do I believe that? Did I, did that come from me or did that come from someone else? Do I truly believe that? Or is that something that I was told my whole life? So I'm supposed to believe it. Right. Um, and once you get through that and you're actually able to say, this is who I am, this is what I truly believe in. And these are the things that I stand for. It's, it's very easy, I think, to do that and, and mm. be who you are. Because nice. at that point, you know who you are. You know, you, you, you can, you're confident in it. You don't have to, you know, act a certain way in a certain place because that's what you think that's supposed to be because you're comfortable with who you are. And that's a tough thing. A lot of people are afraid to um, confront themselves with what they might find. Well, and that's, that's, have to that's deal with, you know, right there. Yeah. So, but I'll tell you, if you do it, it's, it's the most liberating, greatest thing you'll ever uh, do for yourself in your life. Your mind can be your biggest asset or your biggest, um, you know, uh, roadblock to success in anything. And I challenge anyone listening to this, that most of what you think or know or believe or uh, say or do a lot of it was never put there by you. I mean, if you think about it, we all come out of the, the womb with a clean slate, right? It's not like you were born and they said, beautiful baby, too bad. I'll never make more than 35,000. That's where his bar is set. Um, you know, that's <laughs> that, that it, we get to those points because all of these things influence us in our, our lives from the time we're born. Parents, friends, media, culture, school, religion. I mean, all these things shape us, right? And a lot of the things we pick up are good. Most people don't realize we have two minds, right? We have a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. The conscious mind is what we think with, right? And when we're having to do stuff, we actually have to be conscious and think about it. But the subconscious is the biggest part of our, our brain that runs us without us even knowing it. I mean, once you've learned to drive a car and drive a car for a while, how much do you actually think to drive a car or throw a ball or brush your teeth? Or, you know, when you when you talk and you have a reaction to something or someone, you know, in conversation, how much do you really think to do that? It just happens, right? Where does that come from? It comes from the subconscious. The subconscious basically has built an automatic response to every single situation in your life that you've ever come up in contact with. And when you come into a situation like that, again, it will, you know, basically open that little file, pull out that response, and that will be your response. But the true, um, the true uh, personal uh, power and freedom is when you start to recognize those responses and what they are, and then ask yourself, is that really the response I want to have? Or is that put there by someone else and, or something else or, or some experience. And I want to change it to the thought that I want to have or the belief that I want to have. You got to know yourself to do that. But once you do, you know, it's a lifelong journey because you never stop doing that, but everything changes. You change everything about where you're going, what you're capable of, what you believe, you know, and then you challenge yourself. It's one of the reasons that I started racing Ironman was to push my mind, you know, because you don't win those races in your, with your legs and stuff. You, you really do win it in your mind before you win it with your body. And so then it became like a game, right? 
every time I wanted to quit, if I powered through, what, where's my next level? Where's my next level? And then all of a sudden I look back several years later and I'm top 5% in the world. Like, how did that happen? Right. You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm a, I'm five foot eight and 165 pounds. I'm not like your prototype, uh, you know, uh, racing person for this type of stuff, you know? So it's, mm -hmm. um, it, it, a lot of it all starts in your head. So I know it's a little mm -hmm. long winded, but I think it's important for me. No, no, that's, that. that's powerful. I mean, the, the, the potential that we have, I mean, the title of this podcast is, is reaching your truest potential. I mean, that's really about yeah. what this is. And I think that within us uh, lies a lot of potential. And I think what you're presenting is this idea of mindfulness, you know, accessing things that we don't typically access on a daily basis, you know, really going deep within, you know, true mm -hmm. self-awareness to understand what are our strengths, where are our weaknesses, where are our goals, um, what are we truly yeah. capable of doing? And then overcoming our fear. I mean, a lot of the reasons why people are conservative, the reason why people don't want to fulfill their potential is because it takes risk and they have mm -hmm. to put themselves in a very uncomfortable position to accomplish their goals. So I think what you're presenting is this idea of punching through. You know? okay. Well, one way to, you know, a great way to punch around fear is to really understand and know yourself too. Yeah. A lot of fear that we get is because we, we're not sure what to do because we don't really know ourselves or, or have a base that, you know, we're standing upon, right? It's like uh, quicksand in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, once you know yourself and you know what you stand for and you know your values and you know, you know, who you are and, and the things that you, you won't sacrifice and you'll stand firm on, well, then it's very easy to, to overcome when, when those challenges come up or that fear starts to come up. Right. Um, but the greatest, a lot of the greatest things happen on the other side of that fear. Right. Sometimes they well, don't, give us honestly, mm. some, and sometimes they don't. Right. Yeah. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, Oh crap, it didn't work this one time or the fear was real. And what really I was afraid of actually happened. That'll happen. But it doesn't mean you give up. That doesn't mean you give up on mm. everything because of it, because it happened once. But that's something that'll go in your subconscious and come up every single time that you hit fear again, that you're going to have to overcome and say, no, no, that's not, that's not true. You know? Yeah. Well, share, share a story with us on how, how you were afraid of something, how you had fear about something. And then you sort of leaned in and realized that you could come on top and that fear actually turned into Gosh. your strength and a massive opportunity. I mean, so many, there's, there's a, you know, it, it still happens all the time. Um, you know, uh, I can't count there uh, multiple times, multiple times, uh, even in grasp when we were growing like crazy, we would wake up one day and look at the numbers. Sales were great. We weren't collecting the cash and we were like a week or two from going out of business. Like hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars in revenue. And all of a sudden, like, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it past another two weeks. I got to empty the bank account, put all that money in the business to keep us going. And hopefully we can get through it and get paid back. You know, try, try doing that. Try taking all the savings you have and putting it into a company to keep it going when it's supposed to only survive another two weeks. Talk about fear. Right. Um, but it's, it's, it's basically looking at that and saying, okay, here's how we can make this work. We can do this for a short amount of time. We can do X, Y, and Z. We can call uh, these people we owe bills to and ask if we can pay a little bit later. Maybe we'll pay a little bit more because of it. It's starting to, you know, it's asking how. I think that's the challenge with uh, a lot of people is they just will reach a roadblock or a, a, a level of fear where they bind just stops because they say, I can't do it or it's over or it's not possible. And 
at that point, your mind stops. When you say it's over or I can't, your mind stops thinking, your mind stops working. But when you start saying, how? How can I make this happen? How can we make this work? Now your brain, your creativity starts to get activated and you start to look for different ways to, to make it work, right? So there's been situations like that, you know, and that was early on, thankfully, you know, and, and, and got through that, learned a lot through those things. In fact, um, that's the reason that originally happened because we didn't have really good systems or processes in place. We were drinking from a fire hose growing, but we weren't really working on the business. And so we actually consciously slowed down and put all the processes and documented all of the systems and all the things in place and figured out what, who we needed in the right positions and all that type of stuff. And it, it was hard, man. It was hard to slow down and, you know, grow at a much smaller clip to be able to do that. But coming out of that's what, you know, fueled the, the growth that, that, you know, um, landed us on all those lists and, and things like that. Right. So from a business side, that's that, um, I can't count how many times like in an Ironman race that I thought I was going to die. <laughs> and my brain was screaming, you better stop. Cause you're going to die. You know, um, you know, mile 20 mile 20. I mean, for those that don't know what an Ironman races, it's a two and a half mile swim followed by a 112 mile bike ride, followed by a marathon as fast as you can do it. That's really what the race is. And so when I first got started in this stuff, I didn't, I didn't know the things that I know today. And that's why it takes multiple years to, to get good at these things, but I didn't know like how to do nutrition, right? So like when I first got started, like I thought just drinking water, <laughs> but there's balancing nutrition, getting enough calories, electrolytes, all that stuff. So, you know, I had times where like my body just like, like my legs physically locked up and I didn't know why I didn't have enough salt. I had to learn that lesson and like walk in and, and stuff where, you know, you get that fear, like, Oh my God, am I going to have a heart attack or am I going to have that type of stuff? And you have to like settle yourself push through it, realize that your brain is screaming at you because it's uncomfortable. It's hit a level that it's, you know, hasn't been to before. And then you push through it and you get to that finish line and all of a sudden it's not a, such a big deal anymore. And then the next time you have a situation like that, your brain knows, Hey, we got through this before. We just had to do this and this and, you know, all good. Right. So, and that, that constantly happens. You're constantly having to level up in life in all areas mm -hmm. like that. Um, so but again, in, in an, your mind is in your biggest Ironman obstacle race. or asset. Mm. Yeah. So in an Ironman race, why why is the order that? Why is it? Uh, what is it? Running last, swim, swimming, swim, in the middle, bike, run, swim, bike, run. Why is it that level? That's we're masochists. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, it, it it all started with you know it started in like the '60s and stuff with some military guys and everything, um, special forces stuff like that. And you know, I, I um. I think it's just, it, it was just the way that they originally did it. You know, I'd actually have to go look up the origins on that, but I know like um, it, it eventually it started in California. It ended up in Hawaii where they would, the, the reason the bike rides 112 was because from Kona to Javi, uh, which is a, a city that's on the Northern coast of the big Island. It was a 112 mile bike ride. So like okay. I, you know, somebody's like, let's, you know, let, we'll swim across the bay and back because that's the bay in Kona, right? It's about two and a half miles. And then, you know, somebody was probably like, oh yeah, well, I bet you I can ride to Javi and back, you know, that's 112. And then somebody was like, well, oh yeah, I'll do all that. And then I'll just, I'll <laughs> run a marathon too. You know what I mean? So like, that's how it probably some ways got going. But I mean, triathlon has been around a long time. It's been an Olympic sport. Ironman is just a, you know, kind of, 
extreme version of it. Believe it or not, there are ones that are longer than Iron Man um, that people do that span like even a couple days nowadays. But um, but Iron Man obviously has its name and it's it's uh, there's a huge business around it and all of that. And it's one of the best well put together, you know, uh, races and formats and and how they do everything. So um, so the short and long of it is it probably has some you know, thought science behind it, but it probably also was just how they started originally. And uh, they took from a a true Olympic triathlon and just made it bigger and bigger. Um, But I just say we're masochists in the end. We we want to do all that. And then we we want to, the hardest part to run is at the end, right? So, um, you know, that's the the hardest part. You'd love to jump in the water at the end, wouldn't you? And like cool off and swim. No, we're going to run at the end in 90 degree heat when it's the hottest part of the day. That's what we're going to do. So, Unbelievable. <laughs> well, listen, Dave, thank you so much for your time um, on the Connection Loop podcast. Um, where can folks learn more about you, your social channels? Um, while you're while you're yeah. giving us some info, I'm going to grab my guitar here and I'm going to play uh, the Misfits song Skulls. I'm going to just <laughs> lightly play the chord progression while you're okay. telling us where we can connect with you. Great. So uh, MisfitEntrepreneur.com, if you want to see the podcast, 12minutetrading.com, 12minutetrading.com is uh, the trading and investing uh, you know, business and strategies around that. We do a weekly newsletter service around everything that we're doing. And if you're a beginner, we teach you from beginning to uh, you know, advanced uh, in how to create income from the markets. So um, it's called 12 Minute Trading because we trade in less than 12 minutes a day. I was working 90 hour a week, so I had to be able to do it in less than uh, a few minutes a day. So that's where that came from. And then, you know, if you search the name, L-U-K-A-S is my last name, Dave Lucas. I'm fairly active on Twitter, um, LinkedIn. Don't really do anything on Facebook or anything like that stuff. Uh, but YouTube channel is a really good place to find us too. 12 Minute Trading YouTube channel. So Here it is. very attitude guitar thank you so much (laughs) you got it man really appreciate you everybody listening all right be well have fun in kona thanks hey i'm ruben from dub welcome to connection loop our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections Connection Loop features long-form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dove at Dove.com.